Uh, this morning we're reading from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Aaron, is this thing, this is in the right place? Okay. I, yeah. Sometimes it was like touching my face, and then sometimes it was like up here. So I'm just making sure it's working. Um, hey, good morning. Uh, my name's Austin Lennox. I'm one of the staff members here. Uh, we're so glad that y'all are with us. And um, I saw a, a cartoon this week. One of my friends sent, sent it to me, and it's, uh, it's these like two little cartoon uh, alien beings. And they're in this room, and one of them's sitting on the couch, and he's got, like, a soda and some Cheetos, and he's, like, watching TV. Uh, and the other friend comes in, and, and this guy on the couch, you know, covered in, like, Cheeto dust and, and watching TV, he looks at his friend and says, you know, I think I'm going to become a better being. Uh, and, and the second friend says, when? Uh, and the guy on the couch with the chip bag and the soda, he says, in a few days. And the friend goes, oh, on the day that we traditionally try to become better beings. And the guy on the couch says, uh, yes, until then, I will mildly debase myself. And the second friend says, ah, to maximize contrast. And the guy on the couch says, exactly. Um, it's January 1, the day that we traditionally say that we are going to become better beings, whatever that looks like for you. We uh, are traditionally pretty optimistic about ourselves. 
on January 1. New goals, new plans. Uh, we've spent the last week mildly debasing ourselves uh, with copious amounts of food and television and family time. Uh, we've been living in elastic waistbands. And uh, we've done it in this like weird amorphous blob of time between Christmas Day and New Year's where you never know like what day it is or what time it is. And a lot of our plans and resolutions for the future hinge on this idea of us being pretty optimistic about ourselves. Uh, I am never more optimistic about myself than when I'm thinking about future me. Present me thinks that future me is going to be a lot better than present me. Uh, when I set my alarm every night, I'm very optimistic about future me. And then when it comes time to wake up, real pessimistic about present me. Uh, I am probably never more optimistic than when I'm packing books for vacation. Uh, I bring 10 because I'm like, well, what if? What if I have all this time and, and maybe I want to get to all these things that I've been saving on my list and then by the end of vacation you've earned half of one, you know, and you feel shame. And um, look, I, if, if you were like me showing up this morning at 9 a.m. on New Year's Day, number one, you deserve a medal for being here, but number two, I, it's just been a, it's been a tough year and I just kind of feel worn out and tired and uh there's just been a lot of waiting and a lot of anxiety and a lot of tragedy this year. And so I, I feel mildly debased. Uh, I feel pretty feeble and pretty weak. And uh, maybe some of you feel pretty angry and pretty sad at the last year. Uh, and yet there's still, uh, I don't know, maybe you're actually less optimistic about yourself. Uh, and maybe that's actually a really good place to be is being less optimistic about yourself. And so, look, th this, this section of Isaiah that we've been in for all of Advent, uh, chapters 40 through 55, th they're actually written to a people that are in exile. Uh, it's written for the nation of Israel in the future when they're going to have been captured and taken away by this other nation called Babylon. And it's Israel's fault. Uh, they, they did it to themselves, right? Their own rebellion against God, their own debasement of themselves has led uh, to this exile situation. Uh, and so it's written to a people that are not home. Uh, they're in unfamiliar lands, surrounded by people who do not know their God, do not worship their God, do not like them or their God, their customs and their culture. And they did it. They caused it. They're the reason why. And so they have lost optimism about themselves, They've run out of optimism about themselves. And if you're a Christian here, and, and we don't assume that everyone is, but if you're a Christian here, the, the Bible says the same thing about you. So much so uh, that Peter, when he writes his letters in the New Testament, he actually calls the church the elect exiles. Right? That's what he calls the church. That, he says that's what it's like to belong to God is that you are not home, uh, that you've made a mess of yourself, and that you need to be brought back. That's the picture that Peter gives us of the church in the New Testament. And so the passage before us this morning, it, it's, it's utterly realistic about us, about who we are. And it's that we come with nothing, but we come to a God who gives us everything. And that that grace actually changes things. That that grace actually changes things. So before we dive in, I, I just want to think about this passage in three ways. I want us to look at the offer the order, and the outcome. So there's an offer, there's an order, and then there's an outcome. So first, the offer. Uh, this passage starts with an invitation. Right? And, and one commentator says that it's a, it's a universal uh, invitation that's open to everyone. Uh, but it, I actually think it's pretty exclusive. It's a pretty exclusive invitation because you can only come if you're thirsty. It says you can only come without money. 
But if that's you, if you're thirsty and you have no money, then come on. We've, we've got water, we've got milk, we've got wine, and come and get it for free. All you have to do is show up. One commentator says that your thirst, this, this feeling and experience of not having what you need, not being fulfilled, that that's not a problem in the kingdom, that it's actually an opportunity. That if you feel thirsty, it's not a problem, it's actually an opportunity. And so if you're here this morning and you're not full of yourself, you're actually empty of yourself, and, and you actually think maybe I'm not the kind of person that belongs in a church pew, right, on Sunday mornings after, after the year that I've had, if you're not put together, that's not a problem. It's an opportunity. It's actually right where God wants you and right where Isaiah wants you. Because for this offer, for this invitation, all you need is need. All you need is your own need. And now look at verse 2 with me, right? It says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? And so what verse 2 is saying essentially is that there is a way to live where you are constantly seeking and constantly spending and yet you don't quench that thirst. That you're trying all these things and yet it's not working, right? On the one hand, you can receive everything freely that you need and be satisfied, right? Free wine and free milk sounds pretty good. And then on the other hand, you can seek and spend and work and labor and come up empty and not get anything. And it makes me think about uh, this story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 that you might be familiar with called the prodigal son. And it's the story where this young son essentially tells his father, like, hey, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, I could get all of my inheritance and do whatever I want with it. And so he says, hey, what if you just gave me your inheritance right now? And so the father does it. He, he gives him his inheritance, and this younger son, he goes off, and it says he squanders all of his money in reckless living. Uh, fill in the blank on whatever that looks like for you, reckless living. And uh, in the story, right, after he spends everything he has, this, this famine hits, right? Food runs out in the country that he's in, and he's so desperate that he ends up working on a farm with all these pigs. And his situation gets so bad that he starts looking at the food that the pigs are eating, and he starts, it, it looks enticing, He's jealous of the pigs, and he's thinking, I, I'm in a bad situation. I, I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to beg to just maybe be a servant in his house. Maybe he'll take me back as a servant. And, um, and so he goes, and he comes back, and, and his father actually meets him before he can even get to the house. And he meets him with love and compassion and forgiveness, and he puts a robe on him, and he puts a ring on his finger. And the son realizes Everything that I ever needed was here all along for free with my father. I had everything that I needed, and yet I lived in such a way. I went out, and I, and I sought, and I spent, and it gave me nothing, right? And, and that's the picture that we get of what it's like for us to go out on our own and to seek and spend for happiness and for satisfaction. Look, when we try to quench this, like, cosmic thirst within us, uh, with money or sex or pleasure, you name it, it actually takes from us. Right? It, it, it doesn't give us what we think it's going to give us. It actually steals from us. It, it doesn't make you more human or more full. It makes you less human and less full. Right? To, to drink your way into happiness or to use your body uh, to get approval from other people or to use other people's bodies to get pleasure for yourself it takes from you. It does not give to you. And look, every other God that you worship, every other thing in life that you look at and say, 
That's what I need. If I had that, I would be full. I would be satisfied. Every other thing that we worship will take from you. It will take from you. Only the God of the Bible in Jesus Christ gives us himself to bless us. But how does that work? Right? How does that work? Well, if you look at verses 2 and 3, here's what it says. It says, listen and eat what is good. Listen and eat. Right? Incline your ear and hear that your soul may live. And so this whole process starts with listening. It's really interesting. It starts with listening. Right? That's how we get full. That's how we get satisfied. And it's actually a really common theme in Scripture, and it's super weird. that There's this prophet named Ezekiel in the Old Testament, and God actually tells him to like eat the scroll that has all of God's word on it. Uh, and the same thing happens to the Apostle John when he's writing the book of Revelation, right? It's, it's that he's supposed to eat and consume this scroll. And so it's this picture that like God's word to us is, is like food. In the same way that food nourishes you physically, God's word coming into your life is supposed to nourish you spiritually. <laughs> Have you ever wondered how weird it is that like we show up once a week and you all just sit there for like 30 minutes while someone gets up here and talks about the Bible. It's like a really strange thing to do if you think about it. But that's our thing. Why is that our thing? Why do we do that? It's because every, every Sunday when you show up, the sermon is like a meal. And look, sometimes, right, you get a T-bone steak and it's, and it's you know, twice-baked potato and it's really awesome. And then sometimes it's McDonald's. And I don't want to know what you think this morning is like right now. But, but every Sunday you show up, the sermon is like a meal. We, we open God's word and we present Jesus Christ to spiritually nourish and feed people. Right? Because he can actually quench the thirst of your soul. He can actually fill people who are empty. And so the gospel that we hope to be talking about all the time here, right, it's, it's good news, not good advice. Those are very different things, right? Good news is very different than good advice. Good advice would say, hey, go do this and you'll be full. But good news says, hey, something has already happened and that can fill you. Right? Very different things. It just has to be heard and believed. You just have to hear it and believe it. And so this offer is for poor, broke, hungry people. Just come and believe and it's free. Just believe this good news. But what is the actual offer, right? If that's who it's to, right, that's kind of what it is. What is the actual offer? And the message that we get is this weird intrusion here that starts talking about King David, right? The, the most famous king in Old Testament Israel says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And essentially what's happening is, is God is saying, look, I'm going to love you in the same way that I've loved David, I'm going to make promises to you, and I'm going to give you a love that is not dependent upon you and what you do, but that's actually dependent upon me and who I am, and that I'm a promise keeper. And so, again, this is going to be a little teachy. I'm sorry. But in 2 Samuel 7, God makes this promise to David that he's going to have a descendant. And that this descendant, right, from King David's family is going to rule on the throne of the universe, right, forever. He says, I'm going to raise up an offspring that's going to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'm going to establish his kingdom. God is saying this to David. He's saying, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. 
And then a thousand years later, Jesus shows up. And the genealogies actually show us that he comes from David's family. He comes from the line of David. And so all these promises that God made to David in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. That's what we've been saying all Advent, is that these passages from Isaiah, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the you in verse 5, when it says, Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. And what this picture is, is that out of David's house, out of his lineage, this Messiah, this Savior of the world was going to come. And that not only Israel, but that all these other nations, right, people like us here today, they're going to come to Jesus, and he's going to forgive them and heal them and restore them and forgive them. That he's going to quench this thirst that they have. And so in Jesus Christ, God shows you and me the same kind of love that he showed King David. It's his covenant, promise-keeping love. If you've ever read uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, she calls it a, uh, a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. And that that's what we get in Jesus. Right? That by his death and resurrection, people who trust in him, no matter how thirsty or poor or desperate or mildly debased, right, they can come to him and be forgiven, healed, and restored. And so that's the offer. That's the offer on the table. But if you take it, it will ask things of you. Right? If you come to this offer and you say, yes, I need that, it will ask things of you. And so there's an order after the offer. Right? There's an offer and then there's an order. We're commanded to do things. In light of how good this gospel and this offer is, we're commanded to do things. And we're commanded to seek and to turn. Right? To seek and to turn. If you look at verse 6, that's how it starts. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. That's a command. It's something to do. In light of how good this offer is, there's something that we have to do. But how, do you, how do you seek the Lord? What does that look like? Well, in verse 7, we get this idea of turning or of returning. And in kind of Christianese church lingo, uh, it's this word called repentance. And it's this idea of going in one direction and then turning and going in a different direction. That's what it looks like to seek the Lord, to turn and to repent. And if you look in verse 7, it includes our way and our thoughts. It says, let the wicked forsake his way, let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. But why would, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone say, you know what, I, I am actually going to stop doing things that I want and start doing things that God wants me to do? What would ever possess someone to do that? I really hope this works. But <laughs> have you ever like, asked that question or been asked that question? I remember this coming up like, in seminary that people would be like, hey, are, are, we, are we on the hook to forgive people if they don't ask us? And it's kind of this question of like, okay, if, no one, if this person that's wronged me never comes to me and asks me to forgive them, am I still on the hook to forgive this person? It's a good question, and it's an interesting question. And one of my professors just said, well, what if they knew that you were going to forgive them? Maybe that would actually make it easier for them to come and ask. right? What, what if they knew that if they came and asked that you would forgive them? Wouldn't, wouldn't that at least make it easier for them? to come and ask you for forgiveness? And this passage says the same thing, right? What if you knew that God would forgive you when you came to him? 
Verse 7 says, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and return to our God for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. That's a promise. Right? If, you, if you come to him, he will forgive you. And it's actually this offer that you see in verses 1 through 5. It's the goodness of that offer that should make us want to return to him in the first place, right? right? Notice the order of the order, right? The order of the order matters. The offer is on the table before you even have to do anything, right? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not, hey, repent good enough, and then you will receive forgiveness, The good news is that forgiveness is here and available free of cost and that when you take it, that grace will change you. That grace changes things. I I think for a long time I thought that Christianity was just me being a forgiven version of the old me. And the gospel says, no, you're actually going to be changed. That you're going to become new. You're going to be a new you. And so this grace changes you. It changes you. You turn from certain things, and you turn to other things. Right? I've never, like, read Les Mis, and I've never seen the, the play, but I've watched the movie on Netflix, and, um, and it's awesome, right? Like, in the beginning, right, Jean Valjean, he starts the movie off as this criminal. He's been permanently marked as a thief, He's got these papers and these markings. And because of that, he he can't get a job. He can't get hired. People won't help him. And then this local bishop takes him in, gives him a warm meal, gives him shelter, gives him compassion, friendship, kindness, all these things. And how does Jean Valjean repay him? He steals from him. He goes into his silver cabinet, and he grabs all this silver, and he shoves it in a sack, and he runs. And then he gets caught. Right, local authorities apprehend him, uh, and they're like, hey, what are, what are you doing with all this silver? Right, you're, you're a marked thief. You're a known criminal. How would you get all this silver? And uh, Jean Valjean says, this bishop gave it to me. <laughs> this bishop gave it to me. And so they take him to the bishop's house, and they say, hey, this, this marked criminal known thief, uh, he says that you gave all this silver to him. Is that true? And the bishop says, yes, and you left before I could give you the best part. And the bishop runs and gets these silver candlesticks and he hands them to Jean Valjean and he leans down and he whispers in his ear and he says, let this change you, right? Let this grace turn you into an honest man. And it does. Grace changes him. Jean Valjean rips up his papers and he says, Jean Valjean is nothing. I'm a new man. I'm a new person, right? Grace changes things. Look, go back to the prodigal son, right? We don't know this because the story stops, you know, when he returns home. But don't you think that when he comes home and his father forgives him and loves him and shows compassion and forgiveness, do you think he loves his father more or less after that? Do you think it's easier for him to love and trust his father after that? Do you see that grace changes us? turns us into people who actually trust God instead of running away from him and trying to find happiness and satisfaction on our own. That's the heart of repentance is to say, look, I'm giving up on my way of doing things, and I will actually try God's way of doing things for a change. 
Um, that, that's what verses 8 and 9 mean, right? When you, when you read it, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is saying, look, exchange your way of doing things for my way of doing things. My way of doing things are better. I'm not going to be this guy who brings this up all the time. But we got a puppy yesterday, and it's awesome. And already in the span of like 12 hours of, of having him, I'm sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> already in the span of, of having him in 12 we've had to remove things from his mouth that he's trying to eat, right? He's going after things. He, he is chasing down his own business, if you know what I mean. And he wants to eat it. And we're having to say, no, 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 no. And we're having to like grab his mouth and scoop it out. And he thinks we're hurting him, right? He's like, no, 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 no. I want this so bad. This is what I need. And we are like, our thoughts are above your thoughts, right? Our ways are above your ways. You don't do that. And I get that I just compared us all to dogs that eat their own business. But it's as if God is this, he's saying, look, Forsake your ways and start trying things my way. Be forgiving because I'm forgiving. Love your neighbor because I've loved you. Stop insisting on doing things your way and start to try to do things my way because your abuse of alcohol or medication has only hurt you. And you need to give it up. Your self-righteous judgment of people is actually turning you into a miserable person and a graceless friend, and you need to stop. Your refusal to forgive people who have really harmed you and your insistence at staying angry at them, it is going to make you less human. And it's actually hurting you more than it hurts them. And so the grace of Jesus Christ is free to take. It's free to take for anyone who wants it. And it's going to cost you. It's going to change you. It's going to ask things of you. But it will never ask more or cost you more than it gives you. Right? Jesus will never ask you for more than what he's given you. Because what he asks of you is to turn away from things that are killing you and to turn to him who gives you life. So what's the outcome Right, what's the outcome of all this? If, if we do this, what happens? Right? There's an offer on the table. There's an order that comes with that offer. And then there's an outcome. What happens if we listen and turn and accept? Well, hopefully very briefly, last thing. God wins and we win. That's the outcome. God wins and we win. Uh, look, verses 10 through 11, uh, God gives us his own illustration for how his word works, for how this gospel works when it goes out. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is saying, like rain and snow enters the earth and causes fruit and vegetation to come up, that's how his word works, that, that something outside of us, outside of creation, comes in and it does stuff. 
that it changes things. And so it's this promise. This is, this is not what I meant to say, but I'm going to say like, It's a promise that when you show up on a Sunday, things happen. God promises that his word is accomplishing things. right? That his purposes for his word will succeed. It's a promise that when you show up, things happen. Right, and verse 11 says that this offer, this invitation, it's going to succeed. That it's going to accomplish what God has willed for it. Which is awesome because you can be confident that when God's word goes out, it never fails. That, that if you take this same offer to people, like I get it. Evangelism is like, even just the word makes me like, makes my body temp go up a couple degrees and my armpits start to sweat. Because you feel so guilty because we don't do it. But verse 11, this promise is awesome because, like, it's impossible to mess up. If you just take this offer to people, God says, it'll accomplish what I want it to. And so if it succeeds, it's not because you had the perfect gospel presentation. And if it fails, it's not because you're, like, a bad Christian. Right? God says, I'm the one who's going to do it. And it's going to succeed for the purposes that I have. What? What else can you say that about? That it's not going to mess up. That it's not going to fail. And this is why I say God wins, right? His purposes happen, right? He makes sure of it. And then if you look at the very end of verse 13, you kind of get this weird line where it says, and all this is done to make God's name great. Right? To make God's name great. Um, I love Christmas card season. Um, me and Meredith love getting Christmas cards. I would love to receive Christmas cards from y'all next year if we didn't receive one this year. And if you come to our house, you'll see that we tape them up all along the door frames of our house so that we can look at them. But what if you came over and instead of seeing everybody else's Christmas card, you saw hundreds of our Christmas cards posted up everywhere? You'd be like, these people are a little narcissistic. This is a little problematic, right? We naturally understand that, that like for someone to be obsessed with themselves is kind of weird. If you came into my house and the only portraits you saw were just pictures, <laughs> sorry, we, <laughs> we used to have this, uh, there was a friend I had in college who had this like soft rule for girls he was interested in, and he said, if her Instagram pictures are more than 50% just her, I'm out. That just came to me, and I had to, had to say it. But look, we recognize, we recognize that when someone's like that, if you walked in and just saw only portraits of them, you'd be like, that's a little strange. And yet when God does it, it's super appropriate. I thought it actually makes a lot of sense. It's really fitting for that to be the case. Because <laughs> he's God, <laughs> right? And it's actually better for us to live in a world with these little God portraits, right, for his name to be famous everywhere, that that's, that's actually good for us, right? That when God wins, when his purposes get accomplished, when he succeeds and when his name is made great, that's actually how we win too. So when God wins, we win. And there's a way to, like, preach the gospel and preach the good news to where it only, like, helps people. Where, like, I'm only saying, hey, this, this is awesome because it helps you, and so we just have to recognize that like, it's also awesome because it makes God glorious and it makes him famous, right? That his name becomes a big deal on earth. But we do win too. <laughs> there are good things for humanity. It's not like it's only about 
I mean, it is only about God, but the fact that it's only about God means that it is good for us too. So look, last thing, if you look at verses 12 and 13, this is how we win. It just says, you shall go out in joy and you shall be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And so the outcome of this offer is that creation gets restored, and we get restored. We have joy. We can have peace. Right? When sin enters into the world in Genesis 3, part of the curse that happens is that thorns and weeds become a thing. Right? Before the fall, before sin, no thorns, no weeds. After the fall, after sin, you get thorns and weeds. And so in this picture it says, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Like, when we sing joy to the world, it says he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found, even down to the plants, right? Even down to your garden. Because grace changes things. Not only does it change you and change me, but it overhauls all of creation, right? No more will thorns infest the ground. No more will death and sickness have a say. No more will mass shootings be a thing. No more will the world feel and be broken. One commentator actually said, the everlasting love of God will heal all of his people's sorrows if they will enter now on the terms of his glorious grace. That's a big claim. That's really audacious. It will heal all of your sorrows. So come find out. Put God to the test. Um, Accept the offer. Try your best to live out the order, to repent, to turn from the things that you want so desperately and to turn back to God. And then see the outcome, right, that there's victory, that there's victory for God and that there's victory for us. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word uh, will accomplish its purposes, that you will feed us by it, that when we come to it, things happen. Even when the sermons aren't great and even when we don't feel good, that you promise things are changing, that things are happening, that your word will accomplish what you meant for it to And so would that give us uh, comfort and peace knowing that the good news of Jesus Christ, it really does change things, that it can change us and that it will change the world. And we thank you for that good news. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.